Revelation 19, starting at verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he does judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great." And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. This passage records the return of the Lord Jesus, and I want to ask a simple question based on the text this morning. Who are you expecting? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We are thankful to be here in your house this morning. We're thankful, Lord, for your word. We ask that you would give us uh, understanding hearts and uh, open our eyes that we would see the, the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ reflected in the message of your word this morning. Please cause us to look forward to his coming, to understand the the name and the essence of his character. Lord, cause us to bring glory and honor to your name. We ask this in the name of your Son. Amen. We are inundated with thoughts and images and preconceptions about Jesus. There's the Jesus of my childhood, right? Made of flannel graph and happily bouncing across the felt board in our Sunday school rooms. There's the Jesus of my grandmother's house, this picture inside a frame of a smiling Savior with a a halo-like glowing backdrop behind his blonde hair, a picture which I now refer to as cheesy Jesus. There's the Jesus of television and movies, some more accurate than others, ranging from effeminate to playful to compassionate, but 
never able to fully capture the essence of both the human and divine nature of the Son of God. Y'all, I have yet to see an artistic rendition of cheesy Jesus riding on a white horse, eyes on fire, clothes splattered in blood, a sword proceeding out of his mouth, leading the host of heaven to victory in a battle against the armies of the earth. Nobody makes a flannel graph Jesus to really tell the story of Revelation 19. And so I want to ask, when you think about or you hear about the second coming of Jesus, just who are you expecting? John's vision is probably different than you imagine. And yet even within this vision, there are the not-so-subtle suggestions that this is the Jesus you know, and it's the Jesus you can't know. There are ways that we know him. There are expressions that have become very common to us, right? Names and titles throughout Scripture that point to him, but none of those names or titles are all-encompassing, all a complete expression of who he is. He is the light of the world. He's the head of the church. He's the firstborn of all creation. He is cornerstone, Emmanuel, wonderful counselor, the author and finisher of our faith. He's the bread of life, the high priest, the good shepherd, the great physician. He's the Messiah, the Son of God, the true vine. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's mediator and rock and savior and Messiah and prince of peace. And he's so much more. You think you know him? Can any of those names, all of those titles combined, you think you can get your heart and mind wrapped around the totality of who Jesus is? The text would tell us you're not even close. Although it does record for us in this text several names or or titles of Jesus as he returns. Verse 11 says the one riding on this horse rushing out from the gates of heaven has a name. It says, he that sat upon the white horse was called faithful and true. This would tell us right away that name isn't necessarily proper name. It's reputation. It is how a person is known. For example, Jesus fulfilled the promise to be named Emmanuel, even though his name was Jesus. Because Emmanuel means God with us. And that is the character of who Jesus is. He's God with us. And so now he's faithful and true, John says. He is entirely trustworthy. He is always right. This is actually how Jesus described himself Earlier in Revelation to the church at Laodicea, back in Revelation 3.14, although there he said, I'm the faithful and true witness, and now John describes him as the faithful and true judge. Verse 13 says, his name is called the Word of God. John has been calling him that for a long time now. He began his gospel by saying, of Jesus. He is the pre-existing God, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
And while we know that the Bible is the written word of God, it tells us about the incarnate word of God, Jesus Christ. The written word points us to the embodied word of who Jesus is. So that if we understand God, if we are to know God, we have to know him through Jesus. As the writer of Hebrews says, God has spoken for a final time through his son. His name is the word of God. Verse 16 gives us another name. It says he has on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Of all kings, he is the king. Of all masters, he is the master. He has no equal. No monarch can challenge him. He rules with unimpeachable authority. Yes, this text says there's a battle, but there is clearly no competition. He's sovereign. He's almighty. He is the unassailable master and king so that the thundering host of heaven could sing up in verse 16, Hallelujah for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. But even in that, you get these three names, right? Faithful and true, the word of God, king of kings and lord of lords. But there is a fourth name mentioned in this text that tells us you don't know everything. Look at the end of verse 12. It says, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. You want to ask me what that name is? Because I can give you my favorite answer lately. I don't know. But I can say this, when John tells us that there is a name you don't know, that only Jesus himself knows, there is this essence of Jesus' character that is unknowable to us. There is a limit, as, as great as all of those titles and expressions and, and descriptions of Jesus are throughout Scripture that we know and love, there is a limit to what you and I can know, and we hit that limit long before we exhaust the essence of who Jesus is. When Moses knelt before the burning bush in Exodus, he insisted that to fulfill the commission of God, I have to be able to go and tell the people what your name is. The response, <laughs> you go tell them I am that I am. And that's going to have to be enough. In Judges 13.8, there's a man named Manoah who received a visit from the Lord and asked for his name. And the response there was, why do you ask my name since it's beyond your understanding? That's the idea here of he had a name written that no man knew but himself. George Eldon Ladd here says the secret name means that the human mind cannot grasp the depths of his being. And so whether your mind is still steeped in the childish joy of flannel graph Jesus, or whether you've dedicated hours and hours of study to the names and titles of Jesus, rest assured, he's even greater than you know. But what's unknowable doesn't give us any excuse for ignoring what has been revealed. When Jesus returns, who are you expecting? The text gives us three expectations for the second coming. First, expect him to return for war. Look at verses 11 through 13. I saw heaven opened, 
and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he does judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Just a, a reminder of the context here, the, the wicked world system of Babylon has been destroyed in chapters 17 and 18. At the end of chapter 18, there's those three <coughs> sad songs of lament. They're sung by the, the kings of the earth and the merchants of the earth and the sailors, right? They're mourning the destruction of Babylon. Then verse nine, uh, chapter 19 opens with this sound of explosive praise, right? It drowns out those songs of lament. Or as we just sang in the words of Matthew Bridges, hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. And so verses 1 through 10, we saw last week, there are these four hallelujah choruses praising God for the return of Jesus. Now John sees in verse 11, heaven opens and there is a rider on a white horse that bursts forward. We saw a a white horse rider earlier in Revelation, but this is different. Back in Revelation 6 verse 2, there is that wicked ruler which rides out over the earth on a white horse going out, if you remember, conquering and to conquer. Well, this new rider is also coming out to make war. He's going forward to conquer, but in righteousness because he is faithful and true. He comes as the righteous judge of all the earth. And whatever your image of Jesus is before this, it is evident at his coming, the end of verse 11 says he is coming to wage war. This is the expectation. This is what Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 through 10. He says, The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe. Paul's prophetic promise is fulfilled when John's prophetic vision comes true. The Lord Jesus is coming to judge, to make war against unrighteousness. And he sees all his enemies. The description here is his eyes are penetrating flames of fire. There is no thought in your mind. There is no desire of your heart that is outside of his vision. He is the righteous, war-making judge of the earth. And he knows your every thought, your every action, the, 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 the very desires of your heart. In fact, John's vision seems intent on telling us, you don't know everything about him, but he knows everything about you. And he is, in fact, crowned with many crowns. The word for crown, there is the word diadem, and it describes a ruler's crown. John MacArthur notes it was a common practice in 
of ancient kings to collect the crowns of their vanquished foes. As they won the victory, they would collect the crown. But Jesus is the eternal king of kings and all the crowns of the earth are as good as his before he even rides out of the gates of heaven to make war. Verse 13 says he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Might want to think of this as the blood that he shed on the cross so that he's wearing this blood-covered robe, but I don't think that's what's pictured here. Remember, much of what John sees in Revelation corresponds to the Old Testament. We see in verse 15 that Jesus has come to tread the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. So when, when the grapes were gathered at harvest time, they were placed in this winepress, this enclosed area that, that someone could come and, and tread them, walk on them, right? Step on and squish them. And as they stomped those grapes, the juice would come out and as it burst out, much of it would be collected, but you can well imagine those treading the grapes ended up with clothes splattered with the stuff. The prophet Isaiah saw God this way in Isaiah 63. He got a vision of this. He describes this glorious and strong traveler who is righteous and mighty to save, but his clothes were, were splattered with, with red. And so Isaiah asked, this is from Isaiah 63, verses 2 through 4, Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads in a winepress? And here's the answer. I have treaded the winepress alone, and from the people no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments and I have stained all my robes. For the day of of vengeance is in my heart and the year of my redeemed has come. You should expect the return of Jesus in glory intent on waging war and shedding blood. In many ways the Jewish people expected this In his first coming, right? The Old Testament they saw as teaching them that the Messiah would come in glory and wage war against God's enemies and rule and reign from the throne of David. The Lord Jesus, the first time he came, was to shed his own blood in the place of his people, bringing salvation for all who believe. But when he comes the second time, it is intent on waging war, bringing God's wrath on all those who refuse to believe. You expect him to come to wage war. Second, expect him to return to reign. Verse 14 through 16. The armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that he should, with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. As he comes to wage war, he is accompanied by the armies of heaven, although it's going to become evident he does not need them. Verses 14 through 16 pictures this 
authoritative rule of Jesus. He has a, a sword. He has a rod. He, he treads the winepress of God's wrath. He is the Lord of hosts. He's, he's, he's got this army from heaven, but they aren't even mentioned as being armed at all. When you read about this army from heaven, they, they come out, they're riding horses, they're clothed in fine white linen of righteousness. John's not describing any weapons of war that they have with them. What he does see is a sharp sword coming from the mouth of Jesus. That is, I think, symbolic of his authoritative command. He is the word of God, and the word from his mouth carries the authority of God. Inasmuch as Jesus himself is the creator God who spoke the world into existence with his word, He is the authoritative God who can bring this world to its knees with his word. He wields this sword with devastating ability, smiting the nations alone. John also says that he will rule them with a rod of iron. This is a promise taken directly from Psalm 2. When God the Father says, I've set my king on Mount Zion, and, and he even tells that king, I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession and you will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like pottery. Listen, this is the nature of the millennial kingdom that's coming. The rule of King Jesus is not describing him, you know, quote, ruling and reigning in our hearts. The promised reign of the King of Kings is that he enforces his righteous rule with absolute authority. In fact, this is what he has promised those who he says will reign with him. Back in chapter 2, verses 26 and 27, Jesus said, He who overcomes and keeps my word until the end, to him I will give power over the nations or authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like a potter's vessel, as I also have received from my Father. should expect him to return to reign. In fact, verse 16 describes what is likely a a banner or a a sash on his robe that goes across his chest and, and down to his thigh that says, King of kings and Lord of lords. And by the time this chapter is finished, he will have defeated his enemies. Revelation 20 opens with what we call the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus. And he'll rule over a kingdom of the whole earth from the throne of David for a thousand years. Expect him to return to reign. (coughs) Third, expect him to return in victory. Start at verse 17. I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great." 
And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him with which he deceived them that received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. Just take a moment to visualize this. John sees an angel. He says standing in the sun, probably what he's describing is I see this angel with the sun as the backdrop and he is shouting this worldwide call to all the buzzards and vultures and flesh-eating birds to gather themselves to this great supper that God has prepared for them. The promise is that these vultures will enjoy the, a feast of kings and captains and mighty warriors. There's going to be horses and dead corpses of all kinds of people. The, the carnage is indiscriminate. Right, free and slaves, small and great. They're going to be a banquet for buzzards. Listen, the offer of salvation was made freely to all who believe in him. The wrath of the Lamb will be executed completely upon all who oppose him. And so even as this call goes out, the beast, the Antichrist, John says, gathers the armies of the earth to fight against the Lord Jesus. And we get nothing about what that battle looks like. Not one description. Verse 20 suggests that it is swift and decisive as if all the armies of the earth are are instantly surrounded. And within that surrounded host, the beast, the Antichrist, the one who had gathered these armies of the earth, He is dragged out from among them. And that false prophet who had worked miracles and deceived the world and led people in worshiping the Antichrist, he is likewise dragged out from the multitude. And together, these enemies of Christ are flung alive, John says, into the lake of fire burning with sulfur to suffer eternally in conscious torments. The remainder of the soldiers of this army are not cast in alive, although they are quickly headed there. John says they are killed with the sword of him that sat on the horse, the sword which proceeded out of his mouth. A word from his mouth. Listen, he had had spoken the world into existence with nothing but his word. He came and he, he quieted the wind and the waves with nothing but his word. He, he lifted a widow's son and Jairus' little daughter and his friend Lazarus up from the grips of death with nothing but his word. He sent out his disciples with the gospel, with nothing but his word, with the promise that all who repent of their sins and have faith in him will be forever saved. And now all those who reject him, who presume to make war against him, who rebel against his word, verse 21 tells us that evil army of the earth is put to death with nothing but his word. He speaks, they fall 
vultures descend. The battle's done. The Lord is glorified. The King of Kings is victorious. And now there remains only one enemy. Chapter 20 is going to deal with him. Revelation 20 verse 2 says the dragon, that old serpent, the devil, Satan, is also bound with a great chain and for a thousand years King Jesus will reign over the earth. Right? The, the fulfillment of the prayer that he taught us to pray is, is at hand here. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That prayer is answered. So let me ask again, just who were you expecting? Cheesy Jesus is not going to burst forth on a white horse from the gates of heaven. Flannelgraph Jesus is never going to invite the vultures of the world to feed on the bodies of his enemies. But the Lord Jesus is coming, faithful and true, the word of God, king of kings and lord of lords, the totality of his righteous character too much for us to fathom. And he's coming with with eyes of flame, a sharp sword from his mouth, a, a rod of iron in his hand, his white robes splattered with the blood of his trampled enemies. In his first coming, he shed his own precious blood in order to save repentant sinners. And in his second coming, his white robe is splattered because he's going to shed the blood of rebellious sinners. In his first coming, he rode into the city of Jerusalem humble and on a donkey. And when he returns from the gates of heaven, it will be on this majestic white horse. In his death, Pilate mocked him by putting up that sign saying, this is the king of the Jews, but in his return, nobody is laughing when the king of kings shows up. He allowed them to beat him and put a crown of thorns into his brow, but he returns crowned with many crowns. Listen, in his first coming, he was rejected by many, but in his second coming, he will reign over all. This is the Jesus you should be expecting. Doesn't this text from the pen of the Apostle John teach you You either make peace with him through repentance and faith or he'll establish peace on the earth through your destruction. The message is clear. Y'all, there is nothing subtle about this text. Not everyone agrees about the timing of the rapture or the millennial reign of Jesus, but all Christians know this king is coming and when Jesus returns, John's clear that he'll come in righteous wrath against the wicked world that continues to rebel against him. But even this morning, there are some of you who have heard the gospel of Jesus, you've heard the, the call of repentance and faith, and you have continued to ignore the offer of peace that he has made, pretending all the while that you were on good terms with the king of kings. When he comes, it's going to be to wage war against those who have not made peace with him. And you'll have no right to be shocked or surprised. You'll just be left to ask yourself, who were you expecting? 